You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. For a long time, the knock on birds was that they're stupid, beady-eyed and nut-brained, reptiles with wings, pigeon heads, turkeys. They fly into windows, peck at their reflections, buzz into power lines, blunder into extinction. Our language reflects our disrespect. Something worthless or unappealing is for the birds. An ineffectual politician is a lame duck. To lay an egg is to flub a performance. To be henpecked is to be harassed with persistent nagging. Eating crow is eating humble pie. The expression bird brain for a stupid, foolish, or scatterbrained person entered the English language in the early 1920s because people thought of birds as mere flying, pecking automatons with brains so small they had no capacity for thought at all. That view is a gone goose. In the past two decades or so, from fields and laboratories around the world, have flowed examples of bird species capable of mental feats comparable to those found in primates. There's a kind of bird that creates colorful designs out of berries, bits of glass, and blossoms to attract females, and another kind that hides up to 33,000 seeds scattered over dozens of square miles and remembers where it put them months later. There's a species that solves a classic puzzle at nearly the same pace as a five-year-old, and one that's an expert at picking locks. There are birds that can count and do simple math, make their own tools, move to the beat of music, comprehend basic principles of physics, remember the past, and plan for the future. Jennifer Ackerman's books include Sex, Sleep, Eat, Drink, Dream, A Day in the Life of Your Body, Ah Chu, The Uncommon Life of Your Common Cold, Chance in the House of Faith, A Natural History of Heredity, and Notes from the Shore. She's a recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship in Nonfiction, a Bunting Fellowship, and a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Her new book, now out in paperback, is The Genius of Birds. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. As I read this book and was just delighted with the variety of things you told us about birds that I could never, ever imagine to be true, I also found myself thinking more and more about humans and about the title of this book, which is The Genius of Birds. Both of those uh, nouns play a big part in this book in terms of understanding just what birds are and just what genius is as well. Yes. Well, the... the um use of the term genius, I think, is well, was very deliberate on my part. I think of genius as a kind of intelligence that may be beyond our understanding in some ways. It's also used in the sense of a kind of knack for knowing what you're doing in your surroundings, for solving the problems of your environment, whether they're social problems or environmental problems. Um, and I think birds have an exceptional ability um, to solve the problems of their environment. It's something they've been doing for a very long time. As I read this book, I began to think of birds less as animals 
and more as an alien species with a different kind of intelligence, not necessarily less than us, but suited to its needs, to the needs of the species and the needs of the birds. And I, I thought this was really an interesting book in that sense, in that part of the story you explore is our own understanding of what thought is, what intention is, what art is. All of those come into play in this book. That's right. And you know, the birds um, that I picked to describe in this book all have really wonderful stories to tell about the nature of um, spatial intelligence, the nature of artistic intelligence, um, social intelligence. Birds have a um, really extraordinarily sophisticated social and emotional intelligence. And um, we're just beginning to understand the evolution of intelligence because of um, some of these studies of birds and and the nature of their cognition and how it came about. What kind of technology and what kind of research and what kind of studies have been brought to bear to reveal these things about birds? Is this big data, new imaging technology? Well, it's all of the above, really. Um, the scientists are, are um, doing very elaborate field studies, as they've always done. They go out and they observe the behavior of birds. They're also doing studies in the laboratory of um, cognitive abilities of birds. They're testing their ability to open tricky containers and, um, you know, uh, measuring how long it takes them to do so and how many different strategies they have for doing that. That's one measure of cognition. They're also looking into the brains of birds. They're doing so with MRI imaging and pet imaging and some of the sophisticated technology that we use to look at human brains. And then they're also um, looking at the, the um, they're studying the genes and the cells of bird brains and the pathways that allow them to recognize faces or um, learn their songs. You know, this book did something for me that I've been wanting to have done for a long time, which was to turn on its head my belief that bigger brain means smarter. It I always knew that wasn't necessarily the case, but it wasn't driven home to me till I read this book. And I think that that's a really interesting aspect of studying birds. Yes. Uh, how can birds have these sophisticated <laughs> cognitive abilities with brains that are the size of a nut? It's really extraordinary. And one of the things that um, you know we're coming to understand is that brain size is really not a very good measure of intelligence. But birds also have very large brains for their body size. It's called relative brain size, and it's true of our species, too. We have very big brains for our bodies. Birds are the same. And they also have an extraordinary density of neurons in their brains. So scientists, neuroscientists, have actually counted the number of neurons in bird brains and found that they have, in some cases, in corvids and parrots, they have twice as many neurons as primate brains of the same size and four times as many neurons as mammal brains of the same size. Wow. You know, you were talking about stories, and I love the stories in this book. There are so many really interesting stories of people and their birds. And you start out with an early one, uh, Who Comes Back too, which is a story of Alex and uh, his owner, uh, Pepperidge. Pepperberg. Irene Pepperberg is a Harvard scientist. And Alex was really one of the first um, birds that 
that led us to understand that that um, the, the intellectual potential of birds. Now, Alex was capable of really remarkable things. He understood hundreds of words and could use them himself in a meaningful way. He could count. He could do basic math. He knew his colors and shapes and numbers. So if you asked Alex um, f- to pick out a... Uh, or to say how many green objects there were on a table full of colored objects. He could tell you two or four or six objects. He could tell you what an object was made of. He could say wood if, if the object was made of wood. And he also even understood abstract concepts like the concept of zero. So he was really a, a remarkable bird, and he, and he wasn't alone in his extraordinary capacities. The, Al, Irene Pepperberg has looked at uh, different African gray parrots since then, and, and uh, there's one named Griffin that has just really demonstrated very similar cognitive abilities. You know, one of the most interesting things that I, I learned about um, interviewing uh, neuroscientists was the idea of theory of mind. And this is this idea that... Um, I'm talking to you, and I've got a model of who you are in my mind, so I ask you questions that are relatively relevant. So, right. And you understand that I have a mind that differs from your mind. Exactly. Um, different thoughts and different ideas and different desires, all those things. That's what theory of mind is. And we really thought it was a uniquely human capacity, but it turns out that birds demonstrate at least some of the fundamental components of theory of mind. And one of my favorite examples of this is the, the Eurasian jay, which it's a, a species of bird that shares food with its mate, and that's pretty standard in the bird world. But the Eur- Eurasian jay um, male seems capable of understanding that his mate has desires, food desires that differ from his own. So he will um, offer her something that she hasn't eaten in a while. You know, we all have that, you know, we've had too much fruit, We now we feel like cheese. He observes what she has eaten and her pref- changing preferences, and he will offer her something that, um, that he thinks she will like, not the thing that he's hungry for, but the thing that she, she may like. And this suggests in very strong terms, really, that he understands that she has desires that differ from his own, and that is one of the basic components of theory of mind. I, I have to say that the more I read this book, the the more intelligent I thought came to think of birds as being. It was just absolutely fascinating. Now, uh, birds have an analog. Are, 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 they're a good way for us to learn about our brains, too, aren't they? They really are. I mean, there's some very um, striking similarities, for instance. Um, birds learn their songs the way we learn language. Mm. And this is something that Darwin actually understood. He called um, birdsong the nearest analogy to human language. And he was really right. The the uh, similarities are astonishing. Right from the beginning of the, the whole process of vocal learning involves imitation and practicing. And that's something that we do to learn speech. And birds even use the same neural pathways and the same genes that we use 
in uh, the, their process of, of song learning that we use in, in learning speech. So that's one very good example of the way that a bird can, can serve as a model for what's going on in the human brain. They also, um, their brains when they're sleeping, have very similar patterns of REM sleep and deep wave sleep that, that our brains do. So scientists are studying the purpose of sleep and how sleep works in the bird brain. And birds also can do something that was so that's so remarkable. I had took me about five minutes of stopping reading and telling pretty much everything, but which is I knew, which is to sleep with one eye open. It, it's describe this. This is amazing. Yeah, they sleep with one eye open, and it's um, a state of vigilance. So they're they're half of their brains are sleeping, and half of them are uh, awake and alert and capable of picking up on the presence of a predator. There's even some belief that um, birds can do this while they're flying, when they're migrating, that they can actually sleep, get rest with just one hemisphere of the brain. That's uh, scary. That reminds me of the way I've sometimes driven home from Los Angeles. Uh, You write, I'm interested in the everyman of the bird world as well as the Einsteins. I might have chosen the other species as my stars, but I chose these for a simple reason. They have great stories to tell, stories that illuminate what might be going on in the mind of a bird as it solves the problems around it and also perhaps give us some perspective on what is going on. I think that this is the the core power of your book is you do a great job of nesting and interleaving and a series of interlocking stories to create for us a whole new vision of the world around us through the eyes of birds. You let us see the world through the birds by telling us their stories. Well, thank you. That was my hope. And my hope is that when people um, are finished reading this book, that they will really look at the birds around them in a in a very different way, to see them as the, the really creative and inventive and um, and intelligent creatures that they are. One of the things that makes them intelligent, and you talk about these critters called grackles. What a great name. I love the names of some of these birds you give us. But grackles are known for food dunking. Yes, this was um, actually very fun to watch. I went to Barbados to um, visit with a scientist who invented the first scale of bird intelligence. And he... um, loves Barbados because it's a place where you can the birds are very tame and they're very easy to observe. So what he does on his deck outside of his apartment is he throws down some um, kibble and he empties a bucket of water, creates a puddle. And the birds, these grackles, they're called carob grackles, and they're related to our boat-tailed grackles. But they'll come over and dunk their kibble into the puddle to soften it enough to eat. And Louis Lefebvre, this scientist, uh, told me that that this is a kind of proto-food processing. So it's very intentional to so- uh, uh, strategy to soften their food so they can eat it. You suggest that birds' brains are different down deep where it, where it matters. They are. Um, they're the neural architecture of a brain of a bird brain is very different from our own. Our brains are arranged, our neurons are arranged into seven layers. And we thought that was what it took to be intelligent, to have a cortex that was structured like ours with these seven different layers. Birds have a completely different neural architecture, which makes sense. We're separated from them by 300 million years of evolution. But they have, their brains um, have neurons organized into clusters, um, which is a very different 
uh, architecture from Mars. On the other hand, we're finding that that what really matters is the connections between neurons and the way that they are wired together. And in this sense, um, birds and humans have converged on similar solutions from very different um, originating points. It's um, Irene Pepperberg has a great analogy. She said that it's a little bit like the difference between a Mac and a PC. Um, you know, the, 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 um, the processing is different, but the outcome is the same. <laughs> well, that's into well. Who does she consider the the Mac? <laughs> which species is the Mac, and which is the PC? Remains to be seen. <laughs> A study yet to be conducted. Um, one of the things that that interests me about this book is this idea of tool using birds. This is pretty astonishing, and we've seen more about this. And this kind of uh, first started uh, coming to, to light uh, back in the 90s with this uh, critter called the New Caledonian Crow. So take us to New Caledonia. We might not want to leave, huh? Oh, it's an amazing place. That was one of the great highlights of my research for the book was um, visiting this island. It's very remote. It's about halfway between Australia and Fiji in the Southwest Pacific. And it is the home of what is arguably the world's smartest bird, the New Caledonian crow. Um, it's, this bird is an expert problem solver and can reason on the level of a, of a five-year-old child. But what it's really known for is its capacity to make and use really complicated tools on par with the, the kind of champion primate tool users like chimps and orangutans. Now, actually, even better because of one aspect of what they do with a stick. Yes, they ha they create, um, they're the only species other than humans to make what's called a hook tool, which is a stick with a little hook on the end of it. And um, to watch a bird make this is really astonishing. They take a, a stick, they trim it of all the, the side branches, and except um, and at one spot they make, they create this little hook. And they use it to poke into um, wood or difficult to get places in plants to extract grubs and, and other insects. How? <laughs> it's kind of mind-boggling. You, did you witness this in the wild? Um, I watched a bird in the laboratory make a tool. I did not get to see one in the wild. In the wild, I saw the crows dropping um, nuts onto, candle nuts, onto the pavement to crack them open. And then using, um, there was a, a, a barrier on the side of the road and it had a, um, a bolt in the hole um, holding things together. And the crow would drop the nut into this hole with the bolt and use it as an anvil while it uh, opened the nut. So that was kind of, that was the, the closest thing I came to, to actually seeing it um, uh, in the wild, but th these birds sometimes they'll make such a great tool that they'll carry it with them. They they um, they keep it in their uh, in their claw in their foot, and they'll carry it from place to place. That is that also is really interesting because, and we can we'll talk a little bit about this later. But this gets to this idea of birds having some kind of like emotions, uh, uh, an emotional life, which is really fascinating. Yes, they do. Um, and, you know, I think this is one area where we've really underestimated animals in general. But the, some of the studies in birds that are coming out now are really interesting in this respect. There, 
there have been studies of ravens in particular, and they seem capable of empathy, which is, again, something we thought was, was special to our species. But ravens live in flocks, very social flocks, and there are a lot of conflicts among them. And when one bird is injured in a conflict or you know, some kind of altercation, its ally or its mate will often console it by either preening it or twining bills with it, which is kind of the bird equivalent of kissing. Wow. Now, I think that one thing that's making it easier for us to understand intelligence in other species is understanding ourselves. And one of the things that I've read about recently more is this idea of what's called working memory, which is a key uh, part of human intelligence, which is the idea that I can throw your phone number, your name, or your occupation into my this little part of my brain, and I can keep it there for an hour before it just floods out by right. It's the, input. It's, it's even for shorter time spans than that. It's the kind of memory that we use if or somebody tells us a phone number and we're hunting for a piece of paper to write it down with. Or, <laughs> you know, when you walk into a room and you're looking for a title of a book on the shelf, and it's what it's what you use to hold the title in your head while you look for the book. And it is really a key component of um, intelligence. And New Caledonian crows are really terrific at this um, skill. They, uh, some people have seen this video of uh, a New Caledonian crow named 007. And oh, he's wow. solving this eight-step puzzle, which is very complicated. And he needs to get the food from the chamber at the end. But to do so, he's got to use one tool to to um, get another tool, to get another tool. And he does this whole long eight-step puzzle in a period of about two minutes. And um, it's uh, one of the strategies that he's using is working memory. Um, he's keeping in mind his goal as he goes through these steps. Now, you are talking about uh, Louis Lefebvre. Uh, he's in the Barbados. Tell us about how he measures bird intelligence. Well. One of the um, strategies that he, he, he actually studies birds in the lab, so he does a lot of um, cognitive studies. He's a psychologist. and um, How do you go from psychology to studying the psychology of birds? Well, That's you a... know, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting question because there are many, there are biopsychologists, I guess. They're, they get very <laughs> interested in how, um, you know, why we have the psychology that we have. And birds are telling us a lot about that. So, so, so he does a lot of studies in the lab, but but his scale of intelligence that he developed, he thought would he tried a different strategy, which was to look at how inventive birds and bird families are in the wild. So he went through about seventy five years of ornithological journals, looking for um, reports of birds and bird in particular families. Uh, doing inventive, unusual, you know, novel sorts of behavior. And he found about 2,300 examples. Um, and they range from, oh, there's some really wonderful ones. There's uh, Green herons are a good example. They, they will put insects on the surface of water and use them as bait to lure fish. And there was uh, <laughs> a story about bald eagles on a frozen lake. <laughs> And they, <laughs> they must have seen the minnows underneath the ice. They chipped holes in the ice, and then they jumped up and down on the surface of the, of the lake. And the minnows popped up through the holes in the ice, and 
they could catch them. So sushi, sushi, exactly. So uh, Louis in, organized these uh, stories into the different bird families, and then he came up with a scale of intelligence. And as you might expect, at the top are the Einsteins of the bird world, the corvids and the which are crows, ravens, magpies, jays, and parrots, um, birds of prey, herons, gulls, um, even uh, tits, finches, and sparrows, smaller birds as well. And at the bottom of the scale are uh, quails, ostriches, and the emu, the national bird of Australia. <laughs> I, I, I regret to tell you that in a previous life, I worked for emu systems. <laughs> They were a very smart company making emulators for emulating synthesizers. <laughs> little will, did they know. Little did they know. This is not news that's going to bring happiness to the ranks of the emuons. Um, one of the things that, that you talk about is this idea of there's two different ways you could look at, at the brain. Either a, a multipurpose single brain that handles everything. It's a general general uh, at purpose brain computer like my Apple or single purpose mental modules, I guess, would be like a calculator, a cell phone that would do different things. Right. And this is actually a, um, a kind of debate that's going on in the field of, of cognition and intelligence generally. Is there such a thing as general intelligence, um, you know, a kind of IQ factor? Or is it that, that we have different kinds of intelligence in the brain, you know, spatial intelligence, social intelligence, which are operating kind of independently as separate modules? So there, there's a, a lot of debate in the bird brain uh, world as well on this very question. And, you know, are, is a brain, is a bird smart in a general way and kind of its brain um, is one big network or does it have specialized modules in you know uh, spatial orientation or in um, uh, vocal learning that kind of thing you know I had never thought about this but as you wrote about uh, chickadees what I realized was that um, birds live in such a different world their world is three-dimensional in a way that ours could never be. It's like the difference between a car chase and a dog fight. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, um, you know, they're, they're facing all kinds of challenges that are, you know, coming from the land, coming from the sky when they're dealing with predators. Um, and I'm not sure that's what you mean, but but one of the things that impresses me about the uh, the chickadee is it's has this very sophisticated form of communication. And that's amazing. It's really quite amazing, and and learning about this um, system of communication in chickadees really changed the way that I hear bird calls now, because I think there's a lot more information being conveyed than we give them credit for. Um, so chickadees, they've uh, uh, been very well studied by scientists now, and their calls, especially their calls that are warning of predators, are um, can specify to other birds around them, other chickadees and also other species, the type of predator, whether it's arriving by land or um, by air, and also the magnitude of threat that that predator represents. So 
um, the more D's at the end of its call, chickadee, D, 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 the more dangerous the predator. Um, and, uh, and other birds really heed these warnings. They're very um, reliable. And uh, so when I pass a chickadee now, I listen for the number of DDDs at the end of its call. <laughs> I had never, I, I'd heard this phrase before, but it's so distressing, the brood parasite. I mean, <laughs> this does sound like something out of Alien. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it is really, it, it's sort of a hard thing to think about, you know, because I, I love birds. I love you know, pretty much all birds, but the idea of a bird dropping its egg into another bird's nest and actually sometimes destroying the the, the native bird's um, own eggs and, you know, expecting that other bird to raise <laughs> its young, feed them and, and put all of its resources into it. It's, it's a, um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult uh Thing and there, are, there are many species of brood parasites. Um, one of them is the the honey guide, which is a very interesting bird because it's developed this relationship with humans, where it will um, guide humans to uh, a honey uh, beehive, and by basically you know hopping from limb to limb and um, and then directing people to the beehive and then people break open the hive they take the honey and the birds get the leftovers they can't break into the hive themselves so it's a very symbiotic relationship <laughs> now there's at, at one point i you write some really beautiful sentences in this thank book, you <laughs> and, which make it a pleasure to read uh in other words nest sitters end up with bigger brains than nest quitters <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to play with words. You do. So explain that. Well, so nest sitters means th 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 there are two kinds of um, birds. There are altricial birds, which are about 80% of species. And those are birds that um, that are uh, have a relatively long juvenile period. So parents devote a lot of resources to raising them. And um, they end up being... Um, having bigger, more developed brains. So long childhood is generally associated with a bigger brain and more intelligence. Precocial birds are birds that um, uh, break out of the egg and they're pretty much ready to go into life um, <laughs> without any training at all. And they tend to be um, uh, smaller brained, uh, less intelligent birds. So um, the 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 nest sitter is the <laughs> is the bird with a long um, that has this longer juvenile period, and the nest quitter is the one that just pops out and leaves right away. I think that this book does an excellent job of taking us through the different kinds of bird intelligence. Um, so talk about just. When you decide to write a book about birds, there's a lot of species of birds. How did you de just uh, develop, divvy this up and pursue some of the research? Yeah, it was one of the big challenges because there's so much out there, and I had to be very selective. I, I decided that I wanted a balance of birds that were um, the, you know, the very smart species, the Einsteins of the bird worlds, uh, the crows and parrots, uh, those kinds of species, but also the the, you know, the common um, birds that we have around us that we don't necessarily think of as um, uh, 
you write particularly well bright. About, you write well about sparrows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really gained a new um, admiration and appreciation for sparrows, for pigeons, um, and my particular favorite, the mockingbird, which is a bird that can store 200 to 2,000 songs in its brain and its brain is a thousand times smaller than ours. And I think it's just remarkable. <laughs> it's better than an iPod. <laughs> That's right. So I was very selective about the species, and I really picked the ones that had great stories to tell. I, I love the stories. Um, one of the things I think that I, I found really interesting was were the finches on, on uh, the Galapagos. Yeah, so this is the other group of birds that uses tools on a regular basis, the woodpecker finches of the Galapagos Islands. And they are a little bit less sophisticated in their tool making than the New Caledonian crows, but they're very sophisticated in their tool use. Mm -hmm. And in areas of the Galapagos that are where food is scarce, hard to find, there's a lot more tool use going on by the woodpeckers um, than in the more lush and abundant areas. Talk about um, the uh, way that um, we see bird flocks. And one of the most amazing things that anybody can go out and see in a bird flock is when you see just this flock of birds and they appear to be like have some kind of remarkable artificial intelligence program going there. Right. Is that really artificial intelligence? It's it's not. But it is one of the things that that for a long time people looked at these uh, flocking behavior and they thought, well, there has to be some sort of instantaneous thought transference going on for these birds to be uh, moving and behaving in unison in this way. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. You know, flocks of starlings and um, they they just, you know, they they seem to turn and move as one in this beautiful shifting sheet of birds. But what we've come to understand is that really um, these the birds, this very complicated behavior is emerging out of some very simple rules that each bird is following. It is paying attention to about six or seven birds around it and um, and following their cues. So out of this, um, all of these individual birds following these very simple rules comes this beautiful kind of complex behavior. It's almost a, a fractal uh, uh experience. Right. Um, We were talking earlier about uh, bird emotions, and you wrote about how how geese uh, become gray as a result of grief. Yes. So Um, so sweet and sad. Yeah, this was an observation by Carl von Frisch, and he, he studied the gray lag goose and noted that when a goose lost its mate. It really took on a kind of just a character of sadness and um, and grief. And you know, it's it's a puzzle to me that we have thought well that that birds or other animals couldn't be capable of grieving. Um, you know, they they form such close social bonds with their mates and with their flock members, and losing one, they must feel some, you know, schism of that bond. And there's, you know, now some pretty good evidence that, um, you know, that birds 
especially crows, which have been well studied in this area, will gather around a dead member of their flock and actually create a kind of cacophonous aggregation is what they call it. And they'll, they'll get very noisy and, and active and, you know, acknowledging the presence of this dead bird. Uh this is pretty common. There's a, there are other um, you describe other scenes of how birds react to their own dead. Never well, right? And you know, there the um, the idea really is that there that some species are using the the death of a, a fellow member to learn um, to understand what how to avoid <laughs> a similar fate themselves and. Um, yeah, so they will, you know, if a bird dies in a particular area, they'll avoid that area for feeding for a period of time. So there's some some very interesting behavior going on there that I think we're just beginning to understand. And, and the social behavior is really interesting, too, because you talk about how uh, marsh tits are the best information providers. Um, and this is with regards to news. And they'll share uh, this information with with their members of their species. Right, and with members of other species. It's really um, <laughs> quite, but tits are a very interesting group of birds, and they do, there's a lot of social learning that goes on. And one of my favorite experiments of, um, with, uh, with tits is that uh, scientists trained them to open a feeder. There were two doors on the feeder. There's a right-hand door and a left-hand door. And a, one group of birds was trained to open the door on the left to get the food, and the other was trained to open the door on the right. And then they sent the birds into the woods, and they seeded the woods with these feeders that had this, this, um, these two different doors. And it, it, the, depending on what side of the feeder that the, the, um, they had, birds had been trained to, to open, they stuck very much with that particular side, whether or not the other side opened. They, they, they opened the side they'd learned to open, and all the birds around them opened that side as well, even though the other side was fully available to open. So the, the tits are kind of conformists the way that we are. They, <laughs> they follow the rules of society, and uh, really interesting experiment. And, and then there were the, the, the cavemen versus the crows. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so this is work from John Marsliff at University of Washington, and I think it's brilliant what he's done with uh, the crow research. Um, he, uh, his group, they periodically they capture the crows and they band them, which is a you know it's a probably a fairly traumatic thing for a crow to be caught and banded, but Marsliff did an experiment where he he had the people that did the banding wear a caveman mask. And later, many years later, as long as nine years later, when somebody wore this cave mask into the area where they, the, the um, capture and banding had taken place, the crows dive-bombed them. I mean, just mobbed them, you know, because they understood this was a dangerous face, this cave mask. <laughs> it, had, it was the kind of person that would capture and band you. And it had communicated that information to other crows, including its um, descendants. I, I think one of the things that's so wonderful to read about is uh, pair bonding and, and all the in all its permutations among birds, and uh, the sexual shenanigans among the skylarks. I mean, <laughs> and this is a scandalous. It, 
It is. You know, we thought for a long time that birds were monogamous. Um, there's the the uh, that old the line in the Delia Ephron heartburn: "If you want monogamy, marry a swan." Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the truth is that most birds are not monogamous. They do stay with their mate to um, raise their young, but there are a lot of dalliances on the side. And the um, the skylark, both male and female, wander. <laughs> let's just yeah. say, and it's um. Some scientists think that this may be one of the reasons that they have gotten to be very smart is because of the cognitive demands of both (laughs) raising a family and staying with a mate and attending to a mate, but also then fooling that mate and leaving and finding another mate to um, to uh, uh, mate with. And then, um, yeah, and. I one of the things that modes of bird intelligence I never knew much about was their ability to uh, navigate to understand space and ma- their internal maps are just astonishing. I mean, this is caching behavior. So explain what bird caching behavior is. Yes, this is this is the mind blowing part of um, the kind of different intelligence that birds seem to have that we're just you know we just leaves us in the dust really. Um, so there, the Clark's Nutcracker is a bird that um, that I mentioned in that introduction that hides these tens of thousands of seeds over many dozens of square miles and can find its own individual stashes months later, even though the landscape may have changed from snow and shifting rock and soil. And they think that it does this by um, triangulating between um, tall landmarks. So it's um, locating its stash, remembering the location. Thousands of locations like that, it's storing in its its brain, and it can return to those individual stashes months later. You know, uh, I also was interested in the idea that of birds being able to see magnetism and navigate by magnetism. Yeah. I think that speaks to this idea that, and I think it's important to understand this, that birds live in a world that's really, really different than our world. They do. And, you know, one of the mysteries of magnetism is where is the receptor located? <laughs> what are they, ex- how are they receiving information about magnetic fields. And there's been a lot of you know debate about this, a lot of um, experimentation, and it's still largely a mystery, but there, it's clear that they do use magnetic fields, both as the sort of compass to guide them where they're going, and possibly also as part of their larger cognitive map in the mind. So when you're navigating somewhere, you need both the map to understand where you're going and then the compass to guide you in the direction to get there. Yeah, this is a really interesting. Uh, it's the the idea of people who use a GPS start to lose <laughs> lose their own maps. Yeah, this is my pet peeve. <laughs> I I always insist that I have two two daughters, and and they're you know they're the millennials. They're using their GPS all the time, and I said, you get out your maps and you you know figure out your orientation because otherwise you're going to lose that skill. And it it's true. If we don't use these navigational skills, you know, we have a part of the brain that, that birds share. It's called the hippocampus. And it's where um, spatial orientation um, takes place. 
And birds that use their uh, navigational skills a lot have a bigger, more robust hippocampus. And and the same is true for us. If we, you know, if we use it, it will be, you know, robust. If we don't, it might atrophy. <laughs> One of the ways my landscape has changed since reading this book is anytime I go out, I now hear the birds and their songs and realize that there's, uh, it's like walking out into a brand new 24-hour news da- channel you never knew existed. <laughs> That's right. They're, they're tweeting intelligence to each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the the information carried in birdsong is quite amazing if you think about it because it's um it it's about proclaiming identity of an individual, you know, a male will sing um to draw a female and and also to declare its territory, um keep other birds out. Its um song is a an indicator of its um status in a flock. It's there's just a tremendous amount of information that's carried in birdsong. And um, it's also exquisitely beautiful in some cases, um, which is a, a, a really wonderful thing. I think one of the things that, that gave me a lot of pleasure in learning about birdsong was that um, when a bird sings a song, its song really perfectly, it gets a big bolus of um, opioids <laughs> They're feel-good chemicals, so when it does a really good job of singing, it feels good. <laughs> I think it's it's astonishing. Uh, you know, that idea of uh, language and communication among birds, what's so interesting about it is that it, it just brings us to this point where we really have to feel, I felt like I really had to guard against anthropo promorphizing. I'm looking and thinking, you know, they're all like little winged Einsteins. (laughs) Yeah, it is a hazard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's a great temptation to project human ideas, human um, strategies onto birds. And, you know, we've fallen into some serious traps with (laughs) that way and, and misunderstandings about animal behavior in general. But I think there's also a risk of the flip side of that, which is thinking, oh, well, the way that we think is completely unique. And, you know, cognitive skills, cognitive traits are like any other traits. They evolved over long periods of time. And um, they they didn't pop out of nowhere. So we're... um, just beginning to understand the, the you know the evolution of cognition and what we can learn about that from um, bird brains. Well, too, one of the reasons that birds are so uh, ubiquitous is that they are very adaptive. Yes, they are, and um, they at least some species are. It's a it's um, becoming clear that yeah, the ad- the really adaptive ones are ones that can deal with the changes wrought by humans. Um, and are generally not so pretty. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there are, um, yeah, it's the sparrows and the blackbirds and the pigeons and the crows and those birds that are, um, uh, you know, really, uh, they're called generalists and mm-hmm. they can adapt to lots of different circumstances. The ones that are in facing difficulty right now are the birds that are specialists. They're, you know, uniquely adapted to a particular habitat. It might be a a particular range on a mountain, and they need a temperature at a certain level. And 
as the planet warms, their uh, range is being pushed higher and higher until it, you know, it just goes right off the mountain into the sky and they'd have no place to live. Or um, long distance migrants um, are another example. They, they depend on the timing of, um, you know, blooms of species of, of insects. And if things are, are um, uh, set awry by changing temperatures, then they're going to be in trouble on, uh, in their staging grounds along their journeys, these long, long distance migrants. The new book by Jennifer Ackerman is The Genius of Birds. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.